की गुरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए भक्ति विनोद परिवार की जाए भक्तवृंद की जाए गुड इवनिंग एवरीवन थैंक यू फॉर कमिंग लास्ट वीक वी स्पोक ऑन द टॉपिक ऑफ सेक्रेट एस्थेटिक रैप्चर इंटरेस्टिंग डिस्कशन वी हैड एंड अ नंबर ऑफ यू वर हियर फॉर दैट एंड it was a development from the previous month's talk which was titled something like beyond birth and death so it went from a very low kind of uh, lower focus in terms of spirituality to a very high pitch between the two months we left off at a very high point in that high pitch by touching on the person of Sri Radha the transcendent consort of Krishna just briefly tonight's talk uh, is uh, uh, entitled sacred uh, shakti i think uh, you might have suggested the name i recall so speak a little bit about that uh, topic appropriately uh, just happens to be and not something i uh thought of ahead of time but um coincidentally happens to be earth day so we in our tradition of godia uh vedanta devotional vedanta then we have a considerable regard for the earth and and uh, we understand her as uh, governed by bhushakti so feminine shakti is of course feminine shaktiman is to use human terms shaktiman and shakti shakti shaktiman power and powerful something like that so in talking about sacred shakti very big topic but i'd like to speak about it um both directly and indirectly and by indirectly and somewhere in between i should say also by that i mean that uh, if there is sacred shakti then there must be a profane shakti also and then there must be some something to experience both one or the other so some kind of intermediate shakti that could be sacred enter the sacred or could be influenced by the profane it is mentioned in shaitashvatarupa anushad a very well known uh, aphorism prasya shakti vibhadai vishuyate it's talking about brahman the great ultimate uh, reality prasya shakti vibhadai vishuyate so it, it means that um, brahman is um, possessed of innumerable shaktis but these three that's called sacred profane and in between primary secondary intermediate shakti of brahman power of brahman these are uh, mentioned in the gita a good place to start a uh, kind of a more popular form of upanishadic wisdom it's sometimes called gita upanishad upanishad of course uh, means literally something like uh, come and sit close upanishad 
the implication is that come and sit close and I'll tell you something secret, privately, something that's not known by the public, not the general knowledge, but special knowledge. So the, the wisdom contained in the Upanishads, but this is very special wisdom, the kind of wisdom that people interested in yoga are, are interested in. So we've gathered here for that kind of thing. So we're, we're sitting close and discussing uh, secret topics. <laughs> so Gita Upanishad, sometimes Bhagavad Gita, the fam- a very famous uh, Hindu sacred text, is also called Gita Upanishad. And there these three uh, shaktis are mentioned. Ajopisan abhyatman bhutanam ishvaropisan prakritiṁ samadhishtaya sambhavami atmamāyāya This text from the fourth chapter speaks about the sacred shakti, we can say. That's kind of an internal shakti to Brahman. Later in the Gita, in the seventh chapter, these other two profane and intermediate shaktis are mentioned. The poetry goes something like this. Aparayamitastanyam prakritim vidineparam and bina means separated so this shakti is being spoken of in the gita by Sri krishna and there he says there's an energy of mind that's separate kind of it exists kind of dependent upon me, but separately from me. Like, now I'm speaking, you're listening. And this device here somewhere is recording that. That talk on the recorder, if you listen to it, that is like my separated energy. It's dependent upon me, but it's functioning, apparently, in a separate way from me. But if we look deeply, we see it's not independent entirely, by any means. So, bina prakritirashtada, this is a separate, this is the, the we call maya shakti also. This is like uh, the shadow of the light. And apureyo mitastanyam prakritim vidime param jivabhuta mahabaho yaidam dharyate jagat. Another energy, another shakti, and that is this intermediate shakti. And this shakti is sometimes called tata or tatastha in the sacred text. Tata means tata means beach. This term it says to us something like this that there is a line that demarks the water from the sand. If you go to the ocean or a lake, then there is a line that demarks the land from the from the water. But you can't put your finger on it. You're either going to touch the land or you're going to touch the water. You're either going to be dry or wet. So this intermediate shakti that has the capacity to experience either the profane influence, the profane power of shakti, or the sacred power, that's us. And we can't quite put our finger on ourselves. We are largely a product of our environment of our association. This is the idea. So, let me talk for a minute or two about consciousness, the nature of consciousness. 
And in analyzing consciousness, see, we can arrive at a logical conclusion as to why such shaktis or powers exist in the first place and what their function is. As you know, surely the uh, sacred text of the Hindus and then the offshoot of Hinduism, Buddhism, these Eastern traditions talk largely about consciousness, especially Hinduism and the yoga tradition, more so than um, anywhere else. And therefore, in the scientific world, if the scientific community is to look anywhere outside of itself, which it hardly does, for understanding, and uh, the topic of consciousness comes up, which it, it does sometimes in science, if anywhere, as I say, outside of itself, it is to look for information about that or insight about that, it has, or scientists have, looked to the East, although they may have been then called heretics by the mainstream community. Nonetheless, some have looked there and they've stayed there and not come back, enjoyed their divorce from science. Not really, as they would see it, as a, a divorce as much as exploring more than what science um, allows or affords us the capacity to do. So, at any rate, consciousness, uh, the main topic of the Upanishads, it's the main topic really for all of us, <laughs> in a sense, because, well, as I like to say, without consciousness, the world wouldn't matter. If matter was to matter, independently of consciousness, then who would know about it? Who would care? So consciousness is the, is the knower, the feeler, the experiencer. Matter is experienced and it doesn't know itself. And of course the Upanishads like to say to us that we are of that nature, of the nature of being, of the nature of consciousness. So to explore ourselves is to explore the nature of, of an enduring reality. But I'd like to go fairly deep into that subject because in a very beginning way, if we were to talk about, let us say, God or the Absolute, and we are seeking a frame of reference to understand the concept, the Upanishads, in seeking to do this in a very introductory way, they say to us what? If there is anything in this world that resembles God, what is it? that most resembles God. What is it? And they say to us, they answer, you, you. But as I say, this is only an introductory idea. If you live in a cave and you've never seen the sun and another fellow lives in the cave with you, or lady, as may be the case, and she goes out and she sees the sun, then comes back in the cave to tell you about it. You have no idea what, what is sun. How can she speak about what is sun? What, it's, it's more than a ball of fire. I mean, it's growth, it's life. It's, I mean, we just had a, you know, six weeks of rain here. Now you know what the sun is <laughs> when it comes out. And when it's not there, you know what it is too. It's life in many respects. That's why often in the sacred text, the sun has also been 
used as a frame of reference to the Absolute, because we are so dependent upon it for our livelihood, for our mind's well-being, for our sustenance through food and so forth, either directly the sunlight, the reflection of the moon, the absence of the sun, which is water, absence in appearance, but certainly it's not absent from the picture. I mean, rain is liquid sunshine. We have to think of it like that in stormy times. So she comes in and she has the task of trying to tell us cave dwellers, what is the sun? Where to begin? So she makes a little hole in the cave and a ray of light comes through. She says, this is the sun, you see? We get some idea. So then you can kind of catch, oh, it's very, it's very, it's the opposite of darkness. To say that the sun is the opposite of darkness is to say very little about it. But nonetheless, to say something about it, and it's a, it's a beginning of kind of give us a foothold in understanding something from the depths of our darkness within the cave about something that is so bright and luminous and that it's uh, beyond uh, description. So the Upanishads also speak to us like this, who are kind of in the darkness under the influence, so to speak, of this profane shakti, or the shadow of light, darkness. When it seeks to speak to us about the nature of light, it says, well, if, if you want something, a frame of reference, then look at yourself. You are alive. You are an experiencer. As I said some time ago, we are experiencers. Matter is experienced. I said it tonight also. But the main experience that we all have, if we think about it, is what? What is the main experience that we all, the most important experience that we have is the experience that we experience. You understand? We are experiencers. We are alive. We are a unit of, of consciousness. So to excavate that as a finding, deep thing. In science, we, we're looking deeply into matter to find something. In ordinary material life, we're looking into matter to find fulfillment, meaning. And in a very sophisticated way, we may try to probe the smallest constituents of matter and find out what it's all about. For, for what? What are we doing all this for? To be happy. But the Upanishads suggest to look in a different direction into the nature of consciousness. And they give a science, so to speak, which is yoga, if you will, a process, a methodology for realizing that. And it's so backwards in its approach compared to our material approach to pursuing happiness that it's uh, often thought to be a folly by people, to be a waste of time or superstitious. It's a very backward way of going about pursuit of happiness in life from the way we have been going about it, according to yoga, for eons in different species of life trying to find it in the sky as a bird and at the bottom of the ocean as a, as a fish and on the land as a reptile, as a human, trying to do all of those things at once because in human life, as I said before, consciousness starts to come to the surface and we can know that we are. And what we are is something so profound that we sense that, that there's nothing we can't do if we, if we try. So we try to do all kinds of things. We try to fly in the sky, make an airplane. We try to go to the bottom of the sea. 
Birds don't try to go to the bottom of the sea and fish don't try to fly in the sky. We do those things. And the reason we do that is because actually consciousness has the capacity to live in any material condition. It's not dependent upon any material condition. And that sense is starting to come to the surface in human life. That without some sophisticated kind of systematic knowledge about how to exploit that opportunity that human life affords us, then we try to be all that we can be in, in a way that will we'll never be fully successful. I mean, no matter how good of a plane we make, we're going to fly like a hummingbird or, I mean, helicopters try that, I guess, but or to, to exist in the bottom of the ocean. So these are all good tries, but they're a waste of our human energy in the pursuit of being all that we can be, being as happy as we would like to be. How happy is that? Hmm. <laughs> How happy do you want to be? Do you want any distress? How happy are you? Now be honest. Now you know how far you have to go. How happy are you? Then you may think, hmm, I've been trying pretty hard. <laughs> Maybe I'm going in the wrong direction. So let us talk a little bit about consciousness, that which we are, in relation to Shakti. As I said, we are consciousness. Panishad say, if you want to understand God, look at yourself. But that's like the person in the cave saying, look at this ray of light coming through. There's much more to the story than that. We like a ray of light from the sun of, of the Absolute. About consciousness, it said, the great Shankar, a great thinker and experiencer, whom you may be familiar with, who uh, has a large following that was uh, termed uh, sometimes the school of Advaita, Advaita Vedanta. He reasoned well in speaking about consciousness, that consciousness is something that is that which cannot be denied. And he said, all material manifestations can be denied in that they, they don't endure, that they're not real, and that they don't endure, ultimately real. Things are here today and gone tomorrow, as we say in common English parlance. So he reasoned that the, uh, the nature of Brahman Consciousness, the absolute, is that it's enduring and it cannot be denied. In other words, to deny consciousness requires consciousness. To, the act of denying is a conscious act. So he posited an idea like this, a purely subjective idea of consciousness. So extreme was his position that he said, Brahma, Satyam, Jagan Mitya. He said Brahman or consciousness is real in the Jagat the world, it's Mityam. He really says it is it doesn't exist. That's pretty harsh for all of us who are experiencing the harshness of the world as it can be. It appears harsh to us, but we just may be going upstream unnecessarily. That's another topic, but this is how he conceived of it. In many respects, it was well thought out, and of course, he was an experiencer also. But the denial of the world entirely, and of any objective reality, left other realizers that followed him, particularly the Vaishnav sects of, uh, of Vedanta, the devotional sects of Vedanta, 
to make a reply, to come with a reply to a rather kind of a harsh idea. The Buddhistic idea is also very, can be very um, subjective. Uh, pure, some schools of Buddhism are just purely subjective. The external world, I mean to say, does not exist for them. Only a thought. Shankar's thinking is similar. Sometimes his teaching has been called a kind of a veiled form of Buddhism. So at any rate, some of these devotional experiencers, transcendentalist lovers, yogins, they made a, they had a reply. They said, "Wait a minute. There's more to be said about this." Shankar is only talking about consciousness, something that you know you cannot. What can you say? He said, oh, you can't talk about it. That was his idea. It, it is beyond words, beyond thought, beyond conceptualization. So, shanti, shanti, shanti. Peace, peace, peace. Be quiet. Say nothing. Nothing to say. So some of these other experiences, they said, you have said there is nothing to say, so please sit down and we will take the microphone. <laughs> So I try to say something. They said something like this. It cannot be adequately expressed in words. It cannot be contained within between the ears. Same idea. But they said, the nature of it is such that you, that, that you cannot say enough about it, not that you cannot say anything about it. I said, after all, if there's nothing you can say about it, then the Upanishads, that is their death, they are speaking about Brahman. They should be quiet then. Nothing to say. No, they said, you cannot say enough about it. So they became busy speaking about it. And the first thing that they said was, there's not much meaning to consciousness that has no object. A purely subjective consciousness that has no object to experience. Not much meaning to that. So they try to bring the world of our experience into the picture, which had been largely erased by Shankar's profound dissertation and insights. They tried to bring it back into the world in a less kind of harsh form of Vedanta and make uh, this uh, discussion of consciousness something that would be uh, more uh, comprehensive and make maybe more sense, especially to those of us who are experiencing the world. After all, it's just to say that it doesn't exist and then to sit quietly and act in that way is a little, a little difficult. The problem here, however, that arose, kind of giving history here, a little of this discussion over centuries, is that to say that Consciousness has little meaning without an object brings in the possibility of a duality here. And the scriptures are clear when they speak about consciousness in saying that it is advaigyan, non-dual. Its nature is non-dual. So some, some problem. If there's a world, then there's Brahman, then there is perhaps duality, and so we have to go further. So at the time of Sri Chaitanya, not so long ago, five-plus centuries ago. Sri Chaitanya, of course, is, uh, is uh, kind of the, the experiential figure that uh, representing the ideal of the particular tradition, lineage, 
that I come in. He was an ecstatic bhakta, devotee, in the least. And his method, the method to his madness was the singing and, uh, and, and dancing, singing the name of God and dancing in ecstasy and crying. And um, like a great waterfall of ecstasy, like if you go to Niagara Falls, it's a wondrous uh, body of water and uh, beautiful, awe-inspiring feature of nature to see millions of gallons of water pouring over, but you can't get too close to it. You kind of have to stand back. So that which he was about, what he experienced, deep, deepest penetration into what these Upanishads are kind of speaking about in, in, in very um, esoteric language, that what he personified, his immediate uh, associates, followers, they tried to make a lake out of that waterfall of ecstasy and make it understandable and approachable, understandable to and approachable by us, so that we could drink from it, bathe in it, dive in it, drown in it, drown in it, and die to the life on the shore <laughs> of material existence. We have to die, the ideas, in order to live. We have to die to the, the killing tendency within us that is the influence of the shadow energy, shadow shakti, maya shakti, that makes us think we're on whole, we're not, we're not full, and we need, and that we go out every day hunting. We are all hunting, and we are all hunted. It's a nightmare. We have a false sense of need due to identifying with, a, with an empty bag, the shadow shakti only of Brahman. Imagine a living thing looking for life in something that's dead. This is our folly. Yoga is for coming out from that, for having life. So with that we need some nourishment. We can drink from the waters of these kind of texts that seek to describe and make accessible to us things like that are un not understandable with the rational mind. But we have a rational mind, so we, we're haunted by that. Things have to make sense to us. But we won't go forward. We're stalled. Great experiences have to speak in such a way that, 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 that they speak the feeling to us, their heart to us, in a logical arrangement of words, otherwise we won't let it go in to our heart. But if they have power, they go anyway. Like you all listen to me and you want it all to make sense, and if it does, then you okay, I'll get with that, I'll go with that, I'm not sure about that, I'm not going to let that. This way we're guided by this uh, beast of our intelligence. I wrote about something you know, there's a thing called on the internet called beliefnet.com, and they, it's a big religious board, and they send me questions about Hinduism, and I answer it. I have a small column there. I was writing something about animals and karma, someone had asked, and so forth. And uh, I, I spoke of humans as a, as a more evolved species, and someone took objection to that. If we're more evolved, then... Why are we in Iraq killing people? And no lion would do that, kill so many people. and No bird, no beast, so many. But that doesn't mean we are less evolved. It just means that we have abused our more evolved and 
position, and our life is more complex also. <laughs> so, intelligence can be a beast also. That's why the human is, can be more dangerous than the, than the uh, animal, wild animal in the, in the jungle. He can lock the animal up with his intelligence and do much more harm to human society as well. can blow the whole planet up, perhaps. So this is a dangerous thing. The necessity that we are driven by, the force of our intellect, we are driven to, to insist that things make sense. But life does not make sense. Not if it's about love. Does love make sense? Love knows no reason. It frees us from the need to know because it has a kind of knowing in it that is inherent in it that is so, how do you say, so uh, essential. Our intellect drives us to want to know things that aren't, we have no need to know. It is extra baggage that we are carrying. They will not help us in the pursuit of our real interest. But in love, there's a kind of knowing. It's super-knowing. Even in ordinary love, we know what to do. And nothing else matters. So life really, really is about love, not knowledge. <laughs> knowledge is such a small thing. We give it such uh, importance. We live, to a large extent, in ignorance. We come to human life and knowledge becomes a topic important for us and it has a prospect it holds for us for setting us free if you work if you get an education you can work for less work for more work less for more get paid more and work less some kind of freedom comes from that knowledge is, has a prospect for giving us freedom and to some extent it, it does that's true but love is something beyond knowing. And at the same time, it's comprehensive knowing. It retires the need to know. Radhavidyam, Radhuguyam. Krishna speaks this in the Gita. He says, oh, let me talk to you about the king of knowledge. What does he talk about then? In that chapter? Love. Bhakti. He says, at the beginning of the ninth chapter of the Gita, he says, Radhavidya Radhuguyam. I, Arjun, my friend, I'm going to speak to you about Raja Vidyam, the king of knowledge, Raja Guhyam, the king of secrets. What does he say at the end of the chapter? Manmana Baba Madbhakto Madhyajimam Namaskuru This is his conclusion. The end of the king of knowledge says, just try to love me. Just be my devotee. Just do this. Namaskar. Namaskar. Namaste. It's not me. It means, it's not about me. Say it. It's not about me. That's the idea. <laughs> Love is a special kind of, it's the end of knowledge. Consciousness is ultimately about love. This is what the followers of Sri Chaitanya came to realize and understand. And that what the ecstasy that he personified in his dancing and singing that they couldn't even get close to they researched the sacred texts very deeply. And they thought, whatever these books talk about, this is it. This is what it's about, to be like this. So happy that you, you just you get up and fall down 
and get up again. You're drinking something. This is the Bhagavad. Chaitanya Devi drank this Bhagavad text. It is poetry. 18,000 verses of poetry. How else? What other language? What other form of word uh, usage will we use to be uh, come close to talking about that which we cannot say enough about? Poetry, perhaps. Song. This is the language of lovers. Of all these texts, so many texts, sacred Hindu texts, this Bhagavad is purely a, a love, love talk. It is said all the Vedas, they speak to us like a, fob, like a king. Do this. Do that. The background of it is affectionate. Like if your mother says, just do this. Okay. Because you know she loves you. So, must be okay. If you can feel the background of the Veda, then you can go along with it. But it's rather strong. Do this. Do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Like a king. Ah, uh, and the piranhas speak like a friend. Something like that. All these texts, sacred texts, different bodies of texts in the, for the Hindus, they speak to us in different ways. And Bhagavatam speaks like a lover to us. It is speaking after all about the love life of the Absolute. Srimad Bhagavata. Bhagavata means Bhagwan, God. And Srimad means that sacred Shakti. Sri, Radha, that brings him to life brings Brahman to life, makes him dance. Sri Chaitanya, this was his heart, this Bhagavatam. Drinking this Pivata Bhagavatam, Rasamalayam. This text says, oh, listen, faithful people, to this Bhagavat. It is the ripened fruit of the tree of Vedic wisdom. Vedic wisdom, all these sacred texts, this is revelation, like a tree. And so many fruits on that tree. And so many branches and so many leaves. So many branches of knowledge taking us in so many different directions. And this, he said, this is the fruit of the tree. Not only the fruit of the tree, the ripened fruit of the tree. He said, it was spoken by Sukha, Sukdev, boy only, 16-year-old boy, Sukdev. The king, Raj, Parikshit, his name was. It means inquirer. He was Jignashu, inquisitive to know. Especially because he was cursed to die in seven days, he was told. So he thought, I need to know something. What, what to do at the time of death? And for that matter, what to do for your whole life? What's the best thing you can do with your life? And particularly, what's the best thing you can do when it seems to be ending? Hmm? He was cursed to die in seven days. The point to us is this. We all have seven days to live only. We should live like that. That means Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. One of these days you will die. And if it's not this Tuesday, it'll be likely more that it will be next Tuesday. This sounds a little morbid, but what the Bhagavatam tells us to, what to do about that. <laughs> It's not pessimistic. It's quite optimistic, actually. This is what it's about. How to stop dying. Not a bad idea. Not impractical. In the least. How to stop dying. This is the problem. Because we sense, our sense is 
But we've always existed. We have no experience of not existing. Why should we think that we wouldn't at some point? Although the environment appears to say that we won't. And so we're struggling against that. Not to die. But how far are we getting? Bhagavatam says, look at it another way here. Die to killing. You're killing, so you must die. You're taking. That is karma. That necessity that's born out of identification with the shadow only of reality makes us feel needy, so we are on the take. We are hunting. Look over your shoulder. We're being hunted also. You have to die to this tendency. It's the whole message of Bhagwat in one sense. The king asked, what to do? A boy appeared, a youth, naked, only 16 years old. We can learn from children also. He spoke this Bhagwat, 18,000 poetic verses. Oh, and it reached the high point of the Bhagwat. What was he talking about? Krishna is dancing with Radha in the gopis. What? A young boy dancing with young girls? I thought this was a serious book. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> there in that chapter, they showed us how to die. And I mean by that, how to stop dying. Once and for all. They heard the flute of Krishna, the flute sound, in the moonlit, autumn moon night, Sarat Purnim. He was in the forest, they heard the flute. And they had 108,000 reasons not to go. They heard their own name, each one of them, in that flute sound. Went into their heart. Go and meet him. If they had fought for one minute, as I say, they could have come up with 1,008 reasons why not to go. No, I'm married to somebody else. My children, what about them? I'm taking the milk is boiling over on the stove. What will the village say if I'm found out to be meeting with a young boy at night? None of them knew, these milk maidens, that others were also hearing their name called. They didn't think. They went. They followed the flute and they died. Hmm? Do you understand? They died to all those concerns of the world. They died to that. They stopped. They turned a deaf ear to that. They followed their heart. They could hear that flute. They could hear that sound because... Oh, because they had been, they had thought about it for a long time. These kind of discussions we're having, these are, this is thinking about this, thinking about this kind of thing, going home, dreaming about it. He said this, she said that. Maybe a lady speaker is told. So I, or she asked that question. He said this. He talked about that book. Maybe I'll read that book. What's in that book? What I can do about this? How I can apply myself like this? It's all sadhana, isn't it? Sadhana. And sadhana makes sadhya. Practice makes perfect. And this sadhana is, is to develop a sangskar for going in the other direction. We have a sangskar, a tendency for a long time to move in the wrong direction in the pursuit of happiness, to look in the shadows for light <laughs> while lighting the shadows with our own self. <laughs> Ludicrous. Do you understand? We are giving the light. We are the lighting the way in the shadow to see. This us, intermediate Shakti, living in the shadow Shakti. We're lighting the shadows and looking in the shadow for light. <laughs> Look within yourself. 
and look deeply. Find your source. And what's going on there in that source? What's that about? What's that sun about? I'm a ray of the sun. I can know something about the sun. What am I about? Well, I'm about love, if you really want to know. We can say. This is what I'm, we're all about. In other words, we're all about getting, and getting is giving. In the ultimate sense, we're thinking that we get by taking. We want to get, we want to be full. Giving is the work of the full, of those who have, not the have-nots. As much as love, love is about giving. Life is about giving, because life moves progressively by giving. We move, we progress by giving, not by taking. We gain by giving. It's intangible in one sense. We can't hold it up and say, look what I got. But our very being will express to people that it's more tangible than any material acquisition that you got by taking. And you have no price to pay for it, no interest. Whatever we get by taking, we have incurred a debt, a karmic debt, interest compounded. But what we get by giving, that's free. There's no hidden agenda there. It feels like it costs something to give because we're so accustomed to taking. Therefore, this is painful to move away from old habits. But as we do, we find a new way of living. We find really how to live rather than how to die. How to remain in the jaws of death only. How to come out from that. And that's only the beginning, to come out from that. Therefore, when they studied Chaitanya's ecstasy, and they looked in the texts and so forth, and they tried to explain it, they thought, whatever he is about, this must be what the texts are about, to be like this. He drank the Bhagwat, he drank this poetry, and passed out. Then he got up and drank it again. And then he passed out, and he got up and he drank it again like a mad person. A veritable, like I say, waterfall of ecstasy. They traced out Nana Shastrivicharana Kanupano Saddharma Samstapako. For who? Lokano Mittakarano Tribune Manu Sharanya Karo. These fellows, these uh, ladies too, these they looked deeply within these texts with a with a purpose in mind to explain to find out how the texts are really talking about this, this ecstasy, what it is. So they developed a language from those texts to explain that ecstasy. They wrote texts about it and made that ecstasy approachable. And one of them, Shijiva, he said like this, Oh, in the discussion, in the history, of the discussion of consciousness in this world, Shankar has posited the purely subjective idea of consciousness. Vaishnav devotional thinkers have come back and said, but there must be an object in order for consciousness to have meaning. But to say that consciousness, as Shankar did, is something that can't be denied, while profound and deeply profound, doesn't say that much about it either, does it? You understand? If I say consciousness is that which cannot be denied, I'm speaking about it in a negative way. If I say, oh, Agni Dave, he's not a bad guy, said something about him, but it doesn't describe all of his good qualities. How he performs kirtan with such feeling, how he cooks so nicely at Govinda's, why thinking of Govinda all the time, 
So, it's profound, what he said, but uh, there must be more to say about it. After all, I can't say enough about it, as I said. So then to say, well, it, that to say that consciousness has, has no, it must have an object for it to have meaning, to be conscious of, that's to say something a little more about it, but that's not saying that much about it either. And it's also bringing up the possibility of, well, if there's matter, if there's the objective world, and there's consciousness, maybe there's duality, but the scriptures, as I said, say, absolute is non-dual. So Jiva Goswami said well, something like this, studying the ecstasy of Chaitanya Dev, he said, hmm, it's like this, you see, being exists. Think about it. It's a tautology. Being exists, but nonetheless it has use, it has value to say it. Being exists. And it, it means whatever exists has the power to exist. You follow me? So there is some power inherent in whatever exists. Brahman is ultimate existence. So it has some power inherent in it. It's not different from it. But if we look deeply within this consciousness, we find there's an interplay between itself and its power. And what is this interplay? It is something like this. If we say that Brahman has no shakti, no power, then it's still, right? It's just emotionless. This was Shankar's idea. It's still. He would say, if you move, you must be unfulfilled. If you're full, sit tight. Nothing to do. You have no necessity to get up and do anything. You're full. You're happy. That's profound. We are moving like anything, trying to be happy. It means we're not full. But Shijiva, the follower of Chaitanya Dev, he said, that there's another way of looking at it. If you're really full, that could cause some movement too. If you're so happy, you might just get up, not out of necessity to need to, to, to have something, but just to celebrate your fullness. Another kind of movement. Not out of necessity, but out of ecstasy. In other words, the static nature of the absolute, still with no necessity to move as we have, an apparent necessity, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, they say. God doesn't have that necessity. He's full, and therefore still in that sense. But the very nature of fullness, the static nature of the absolute, insists that it must be dynamic at the same time. Moving, that means to say. And what is the? What do we know? What do, what do we? What do we have experience of? That is still and moving at the same time in this world. I'll tell you what it is. It's that which we cannot rest without. We are moving for finding love, and we cannot rest until we find it. When we find our love, how ah, we rest, and then what happens? We start to move again. Another kind of movement. Isn't it? A happy movement. So the absolute consciousness, Brahman, has inherent power, Shakti. And the interplay between Brahman and its Shakti is love. So Jeev said, his understanding of Chaitanya, what he represented was this. The consciousness of consciousness is love. The power is an object, in a sense, that consciousness can reflect upon, but not a separate object. You understand? It's inherent within it. Heat, light are inherent within fire. They're one, but they're different, too. 
heat, light are the energy of fire. Fire is the energetic. We can talk about them in different ways. So Leela, play, divine play, the Bhagwan of the Absolute. This is the interplay of Brahman and its sacred Shakti, primary Shakti, as Brahman manifests in its most complete and happy, joyful form, the heart of Brahman is what we mean by Krishna. There is the wisdom of the Brahman and the sacrifice of Brahman and manifest in the Buddha or the Christ, but Krishna is the, is the heart, is the love life of Brahman. Attractive. Yes, the word means irresistible, Krishna. All attractive, Brahman. But oh, what makes him attractive? My Guru Maharaj used to say, oh, Krishna, he's not so attractive standing alone, but when he's standing next to Radha, then he's attractive. That makes him move. That makes him dance. You know, in one sense, Krishna is the guru of everyone. Right? But he says, people think I'm the guru of everybody, but actually, uh, I'm the student, Shishya. I'm the disciple of Radha's dancing. Radhikar Premera Unmad. They heard uh, the dancing of Radha makes, drives me mad. I'm losing it. He says, there are two, one soul and two bodies. It means Brahman in a dimension beyond time and space, beyond time, which is our sentence, and space, which is our cell, in a sense. In the shadow of reality, this play goes on. At a glance, it looks like the movements of karma that we're involved in, like I said. I thought it was a serious book, this Bob, what you told me. And then you said the main part is just this dancing between a young girl and a young boy. It sounds like a frivolous story. They look similar, but they're very different. How did those milk maidens arrive at that position? To hear that flute, that that sound would penetrate their heart and they would go without thinking. We can hear about these kind of topics from so many different angles and start to kind of go in that direction, be a little attracted to come to a session like this and maybe we go home and turn on the radio and whatever and what's happening on the news and who knows what and so yeah, next month comes around and we go again and we lost and so to hear that just once they go that took many many lifetimes passing through the shadow to come there it is said that at some point this Bhagwan Krishna made avatar descent into the world within our frame of reference for what purpose to take us out beyond our frame of reference. But we try to place him within our frame of reference. This is a great loss. If we listen carefully about this kind of thing, we get another frame of reference, an encouragement to go there, to go to that dimension, where it is said, Tathaganam natyam gamanam apibamsi priyasaki. It is said that place where every word is a song, where the walking is dancing. That's how they try to talk about it. Shijibu Goswami said, think about it now. What must be the song there? What must be the dancing there? If every step is a dance, if every word is a song, what must be the singing and dancing of that place? A realm of love, where consciousness manifests in form, to do justice to itself, to express itself. What is the meaning of an artist? 
without a pen and a canvas? Is the form a limitation? Is the form limit the expression of the artist? Without that form, without that canvas and pen, what would we know about it? It expresses itself in that way. So Brahman expressing itself, interplay with its primary shakti. The two, Brahman becomes two in a dynamic sense. We. You see? But it's not compromising non-duality. If you and I fall in love, then you and I become one. But that one is we. It's a dynamic one. This is the nature of love. Union in love is what? I accept your mind, you accept mine. Whatever pleases you, that becomes my pleasure. Whatever pleases me, that becomes your pleasure. This is a dynamic union, not a static union, where our own individuality will dissolve in the name of unity, because our individuality is expressed here in this world as a problem. Because I have things that I like, and you have things that you don't like. You think it's hot, I think it's cold. We have a problem. We want to move away from this individuality that's a perception drawn from the senses that makes me think this is cold, this is hot, you think this is good, I think this is bad. To move away from that and find unity, as good of an idea as that, that's to go to the ground beneath of, of being, beneath the material phenomenon where there's unity. But to go deep within that unity of consciousness, this is the idea, you'll find also variety of expression that doesn't compromise the unity and that variety of expression that is what we call love so this swarup shakti primary shakti of bhagavan manifests as radha and i'll conclude with this this one shakti has varied expressions just like electricity is a we could call a shakti in a sense and it can be expressed as light as heat as air conditioning in so many different ways. So this Shakti that is consorting with Brahman in love, that is at the heart of the, the nature of being and reality, has varied expressions. And we, that intermediate Shakti, are a partial expression of that. And the shadow expression, the profane Shakti, is kind of a distorted expression of that, as the shadows, a distortion of light. And much as we are under the influence of the distortion, then we'll try to find happiness where there is asat, achid, and nirananda. Asat means it doesn't endure. Achid means it's not cognizant. It's not aware. Matter is not aware of itself. And nirananda, there's no happiness there. If we look within ourselves, because we're a partial manifestation of that primary shakti, we find a little potential for happiness, a little potential for enduring. We can find that we don't die. We endure forever. There's happiness in that, <laughs> in knowing that I will live for, that I don't have to worry. Some happiness. And there's cognizance, awareness in me, inherent, that's not in matter, but it's in a small way. Satchirananda. We go from asat, achit, nirananda, in the shadow, to ourself. Satchit Ananda, to the full expression of these things in Lila, we call Sandini, Samvit, Ladini. It's another way of saying Satchit Ananda with like to the 108th power, something like that. 
pure existence. Sat means existence. We exist. Material things are asat. They're here today and gone tomorrow. We are enduring. We exist. But our existence is not necessarily pure. It's influenced by the shadow. So we're thinking we don't exist forever. Therefore, we're struggling to exist. And we're hunting. And this is not very pretty, very beautiful. It's not loving. And we're being hunted. <laughs> so we exist. But our existence may not be pure. As I said, we are the tatasta. We're like that line on the beach. If you try to touch the line between sand and water, you'll either touch sand or water. It's there, but you can't touch it. We almost can't put our finger on ourselves. We are a product of our association. When we associate with matter, with maya shakti, our existence is impure. We are a unit of pure existence, but only a unit. If we associate with that primary shakti through bhakti, which is the channel through which this primary shakti comes to the world, then we can experience pure existence, sudasattva, sandini, and full knowing, samvit, full chit, knowing my sambandam, my relationship with, in love with the Absolute, how to function in love in relation to the Absolute, and to taste the full plate of ananda, ladini. This is the idea. So, in this way, I've tried to speak a little bit about sacred shakti, etc. Thank you very much. Any questions? Comments? Any good advice? <laughs> Don't play the ponies. <laughs> I don't gamble. It's, it's, I only bet on the sure things. <laughs> well, I would just say that I really appreciate what you shared, especially about talking about the shadow aspect and um, moving away from that, because hmm. I've started to feel that in myself lately. Hmm. And it's such a profound, different way of being. I'm just starting to really taste moving from living from the shadow and moving more into the, you know, into the light. To light. Yeah. It's, um, it feels like the beginning of a new existence, really. It's the beginning of, yes, knowing your existence, understanding its potential. Well, I'm very happy for you. Happy, happy I could be of some small assistance also. Keep good company. Keep good company. Stay in the light. Yes. I was curious when you spoke about us lighting the shadow that we're experiencing. Although he was saying that the shadow means nothing really and doesn't exist, how important is it to us? Because obviously as I'm walking around every day, I'm experiencing the shadow in some way. How should I value its importance in my life? Well, there's much value in it in the shadow, in as much as you understand it to be the absence of light, it provides negative impetus for moving in the direction of light. Maya Shakti sometimes said, has it, the thankless task. Have you ever seen Durga? Durga riding on a tiger with a trident, poking? And <laughs> Durga. Dur means difficult, and ga means to go, difficult to go from that influence. It means also citadel, like prison house. I'll tell you another thing, though. Durga is another name for Radha. It means difficult to go to. 
all the way to that side, from this side. Durga is a kind of the personification of the shadow shakti in a way. It's not a bad thing. There's a positive side to it. Because we are moving away from Brahman. Maya shakti doesn't like that. She's pushing us. Don't do that. See, that doesn't work. That doesn't feel good. Giving negative impetus. She has the thankless task of poking us with her trident. She doesn't like to do it, but that's her task, to provide negative impetus, to <laughs> we be compelled to go in the opposite direction. Now, I'm answering your question in a very abstract kind of way. I think you wanted the more practical answer. Basically, you're saying that you're interacting with the world on a regular basis, I think, and so how much importance should you give the world? I think that you have to understand that yoga and spiritual practice is a long haul. Okay, this isn't going to happen overnight. This is a long haul. It is said about karma under, under which influence we are in this world that it is anadi. Anadi means long time. It means beginningless. Anadi karma. These things don't fit between the ears, I know, but nonetheless, that's good that there are things that are you know, transcend our power of reasoning. So we've been under the influence of karma, anadi, since forever, since a time without beginning. So to come out from under that influence, even with the well-wishing of Bhagwan and his representation of Gurudev and scripture and so forth, it's going to take some time. It's a long haul, so we have to be very practical. We have to center our life on that ideal. At the same time, because for a long time, as I say, we are under the influence of material nature and a tendency to move in a particular way and so forth, we cannot just artificially pull the plug from there. So we have to move in life with some, with some balance, under some good guidance. If we can be tied to a sadhu, a saintly person, anchored, I should say, then we can move in the world in such a way that, that our, we'll always, even while interacting with it, we'll be diminishing our interaction and slowly being pulled in, reeled in. So it's important to be anchored. And then we have some, some safety kind of net, so to speak. But otherwise, in general, and what I'm saying is that if yoga is, and it is, much about, in a very rudimentary sense, Controlling the mind. Stopping the thinking business. Because it's not by thinking that you know. <laughs> it's not because we have eyes that we can see. We are a knower, a seer. The eyes get in the way of our seeing. We can only see 20-20. And so many, you know, colors. There's much more to see. And what we can understand about reality by thinking is this, 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 this. It's not worth talking about. By not thinking, by stopping thinking then the, the self starts to come out from underneath the oppression of the mind and knowing beyond what I know with my mind and senses that this is good, this is bad, this is happy, this is sad, this is hot, this is cold. It puts me at odds with other people who experiences the opposite. So, much as yoga is about stopping the mind, arresting the mind, conquering the mind, instead of being conquered by it, driven by it, and doing the things that we we know even with our intelligence aren't good for us, but our mind and senses drive us to do. You ever have the experience of knowing something's not good for you, but doing it anyway? Do you have any experience of ever opera functioning differently than that? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a better way to talk about it. This is our predicament. 
So yoga is for becoming civilized. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> yeah, it's very pragmatic. So, as much as it is about this, controlling the mind, we should know. In order to control the mind, you have to work with the mind. Because it's had control of you for a long, long time. So you are not fit to just get in the ring with the mind. You will be, you will be knocked out <laughs> in the first round. So you, you, you have to work with it to conquer it, and, and, and with help. You have to get help to work with it. So that means something like this. And good guidance will help you with this. That, oh, you, you, if something you just have to do, the mind is driving you, you might as well do it. And you see, ah, it wasn't what it was made out to be anyway. And I knew that, but I didn't. And then you, you, a little bit you have to give in to the mind, a little bit. Not completely, but sometimes you have to give in a little bit. Just like sometimes, in order to go, f go ahead in a big way, you have to step back. If you're going along, going along, going along, and then there's a cliff, and you've got to jump to the other side, whoa, I better back up now. And then I'll run and jump. So... What I mean by this is you have to be very practical. And your question is very general. And, and you need really specific answers. But in a general way, you have to work a little bit with the mind. You have to accept the world a little bit because a little bit you are the world. Even though it's illusory, here today and gone tomorrow, you're so much into it, so much identified with it, that you kind of have to work with it a little bit to get out of it. You have to give it a little room. So, if you hear regularly good advice and so forth, and you have sadhana and so forth, then you, and, good, and you're anchored, as they say, to a sadhu, then you can learn kind of the art of being in the world, but not being, not being blemished by it. And gradually, the whole thing turns to the point where the, the world that's kind of like, in the beginning, like your enemy, you're kind of like, you know, fighting it, all of a sudden, you, you, as you find out, I'm the enemy, I'm the, <laughs> it's me. And I'm really working, I'm working upstream. And, I, and you start to go with the system, then vishvam purnam sukhayate, the world becomes uh, happy and assisting and mind becomes useful even in bhakti. For bhav, it take, it's a whole other topic. But anyway, so you have to kind of work with it a little bit. You can't just deny it. You have to accept it. You have needs that are apparent to you at this time and pressing to you owing to your material identification, and you have to address them with balance. And by getting balance materially, by learning how to stand on two feet in the material world and be balanced and integrated person, then that coupled with good guidance gives you the possibility, the potential to jump high in the sky. You understand what I'm saying? If you're only standing on one foot, then you might just fall on your butt, you know, <laughs> in the name of jumping up and touching the sky, touching the stars in the sky. So there's two things here. We have, it's important to get some, have some horizontal development for the sake of vertical development. Vertical development means, means spiritual development, going up. And horizontal development means getting some balance in this world. So you should acknowledge the world in a way to find balance in it and, and be an integrated person, psychologically balanced, socially integrated, but spiritually anchored with the whole purpose of any 
any balance in life, you know, you need, you're a young man until you want to get your feet on, you know, you don't know who you're, if you're, who you're going to marry, if you're going to marry, where are you going to work, what, what's your job going to be? That's really like, I pity you. That, that, yeah. I was there once, too. <laughs> you know, it, it, <laughs> At, at that age, you know, we don't really know what we are materially, but to speak of spiritually, it's, it's, it's difficult, you know. But it's, tra- it's also attractive. I mean, really, it's a powerful time. Youth is, if you can harness your youth, uh, like that Sukadev, that 16-year-old boy, harnessed his youth. He was speaking to kings. You know? So it's attractive also at the same time. Krishna's a youth, you know, so he's a balanced one. <laughs> kind of, if he's balanced. He's kind of out of balance in Radha's presence, but... <laughs> or she brings him balance. She makes him feel whole. Something like that. Anyway, seek that kind of balance in a sensible way, all with the purpose of jumping high into the sky. So your horizontal development isn't, in a sense, spiritual, but it, it is connected to your spiritual progress. Therefore, there's Dharma and there's Prema Dharma, and that happens to be the topic of next month. Prema Dharma. So we'll talk about that. Any other comment? Question? Yes? You spoke earlier of being in the world and not being blemished by it. Hmm. And it just feels real easy to connect with spirituality in this room. If you're in a work environment where the consciousness tends not to be high, Hmm. how do you keep from being influenced by that? Me? I don't go to work, but... (laughs) 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 But... (laughs) This is my work. That's how I do it. Um, (laughs) Life is complex, yeah. It's difficult. I think that... um, (laughs) I think that uh, you have to become strong by, by things. And you have to make them more frequent than once a month, and they have to you have to put them uh, these kind of discussions uh, into practice in such a way that you that gradually gradually you become more equipped to deal with such situations and become a positive influence on the environment yourself rather than be influenced by a negative environment. But the interesting thing, of course, about that is as you become developed like that, then the perceived necessity that we have to work also kind of diminishes. And you become freer of the necessity to go there because your desires start to diminish. So you don't need to make as much. You could just, you know, have a part-time job. And and, and, uh, uh, gradually you can situate yourself in an environment that is more conducive. So it's a gradual process, and I sympathize with you. I mean, you know, I started doing this when I was 21. I'm 57 this year, so I never worked, <laughs> to be honest with you. But um, but I um, I know a lot of people that do, and that, that's a question that I'm asked all the time. And it's uh, there's no like magic you know bullet to this. It's like I said it's like I said it's a long, long process. And the thing that I can recommend the most is is to keep as far as possible good company, good association. Strive for that. You know, you have time off when you don't work, and you have energy to strive from work, your money. So you need money to live on, but you have fun money also, right? They call it, what do they call it? Disposable income. <laughs> well, you should spend that income on these kind of things, 
I mean, it's spent, it's cost money to rent this place. I'm sure I didn't rent it, but Parmatma rents it, and then she puts it on. So she's using some of her energy. So that disposable income, don't just dispose of it <laughs> on something that's uh, that's disposable, because whatever you acquire with it materially, it's disposable. <laughs> it will show that face in due course of time. New things turn to old things. Things that you really wanted become the things you really want to get rid of. <laughs> and sometimes faster than you would have thought. So, so the time that you don't spend there, the energy, both in time and time is money, you drop it, you use it for these kind of things. And then, you know, wherever you spend your money, you're going to pay attention. <laughs> you're going to go there. So build a temple, publish a book, this kind of thing. Then you think, I should go to that temple. I spend my money on that temple. It's hard-earned money. Uh, something like that. Be generous to yourself. You know, you need something to live on. I don't tell you you should give up everything and run and live in a cave now. That would be artificial. But if you really want this, there is a price to pay. And this is the price. You start making this your fun in life. This is your happiness in life. This is your interest in life. So every spare moment that you do get, that you don't have to work just to feed yourself, to take care of your kids, to send them to school and see that all those things are important. That's part of your life, where you are at now in your evolution. Do all those things. But then everybody's got their fun time. Don't just spend it on the TV or, you know, the latest movie or whatever. Think about it. Spend it on spiritual pursuits. I have a new book just published. You can purchase it tonight. <laughs> to give you a practical example, I've written a book, uh, all these books here on the table are mine, but I've written a new book, it is a commentary on the, uh, it's called Shikshastakam, eight uh, poems of Sri Chaitanya, whom I mentioned in the talk. And uh, some people asked me before this talk, and that's why I also bring it up, if, that would, uh, if I would sign a book for them, so I will sign some books after if anybody wants me to. So I think we've talked a long time, sorry for taking so much of your time, but um, it was pleasant for me and rewarding for me. I appreciate it very much. Thank you all. <laughs>